Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's pray, and as we open up the scripture and center our hearts on Christ, last week was a difficult message on 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about church discipline, and I realize that it is such a... a a, um, a topic that is so often not discussed in church that for many of you it might have hit you for the first time. I want to encourage you if you need to listen to it again or you missed it that there are CDs out on the information desk and we also have all of the notes and audio online and encourage you to digest that. Last week Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church about disciplining a man who was in a particularly scandalous sin in, of sexual in nature. But of course, what we talked about last week about excommunicating an unrepentant brother because of his sin applied not only to sexual sin, but all unrepentant sin. And it's a really important point of truth for a healthy church. This week, we're going to continue in Corinthians in chapter 6. And again, we're going to speak about our responsibility to judge and to handle disputes with one another. But we've moved from chapter 5, which is a scandalous sin, into more grievances between one another. And so today we're going to continue in that theme. It's not a particularly exciting uh, uh, topic to talk about, but it is good for us. It's like eating your broccoli. So um, just pretend it's little trees, and we're like little kids. I'll sprinkle some lemon juice on it, and we'll, uh, we'll get through it. Well, this is, this is good for us. This is so good for us as a church to go through things. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Lord, that churches in the New Testament were not perfect. We have to, uh, I think, divest ourselves of this romantic ideal of the New Testament church that it was just some sort of amazing spiritual community where everybody held hands and sang kumbaya. That is not the case, Lord. They were messed up people just like us. So thank you just for the fact that the Corinthians were, were pardoned rebels with all sorts of contradictions and hypocrisy like us. And now, Lord, as we read in chapter 6, I do pray that you would give us clarity. I pray that you'd give us simplicity and I pray that you would help us span the gaps of centuries so that we would be able to apply the truth that Paul wrote to these Corinthians, inspired by you, to our lives today as modern-day Christians. Lord, again, I pray for people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. Lord, today, heaven and hell hangs in the balance. And I pray, God, that today, even as we're speaking about how Christians should handle disputes with one another, that what Christ has done for us on the cross would become clear. And God, I pray for Christians in this room that we would roll up our sleeves and commit to doing the hard work of living in biblical, healthy community with one another as we are exhorted by Paul's words. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me in this as I communicate. I am a crooked stick. My life is full of, of, uh, of much need of the gospel. And so, Lord, would you help me now and would you draw a straight line with this crooked stick? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And uh, then we will we'll come back and work our way through it. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Okay, so what's going on in these eight verses? What's happening here is Paul, remember, has in the first four chapters of Corinthians been correcting the Corinthians for their spiritual pride and their carnality, refocusing them on the grand themes of the gospel. And in chapter 5, he picked up now on specific correction about some specific things going on in the Corinthian church that needed correction. He starts with the most blatant case of chapter 5 where he talked about a man who was, was having an immoral relationship with his stepmom. And now he moves into a situation that evidently is going on in the Corinthian church where Corinthians, the Corinthian church, the people in the church who are confessing Christians are evidently taking one another to court in rather trivial sort of civil cases. And so there's a couple things that we need to talk about here to give us a little background before I think we glean three points that I want us to realize from this text. The number one thing that we need, this is before the points that I have, so folks back in the back, don't put these points up on. These are just some preliminary thoughts is we need to understand the Corinthian culture and the courts. The Corinthian culture was a culture that put a lot of weight on people that were wealthy and that people had social status. And so their courts mirrored this sort of class system where the wealthy had a lot of privilege. And so it was, it was it, well, we see this sometimes in our culture where uh, people that are particularly wealthy have a much better opportunity to get justice in the courts. Maybe they can hire a better defender or, or, or a lawyer. And this was the case in the Corinthian church. The wealthy and powerful had the advantage. And what most biblical scholars think is going on here in these first eight verses is, is that probably a wealthy person in the church is, has been in a business deal with a poorer Corinthian Christian in the church. And maybe they didn't do the work like they wanted it to be done and it was not done to a satisfactory manner. And so now they're taking them to court kind of like small claims court. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, isn't there, isn't there some way that you can't drag your business or your grievances internally in the church between two Christians before this pagan court? Because we know that once you get into this arena and into this culture, it is heavily favored in the, the balance of the person who, who has the wealth and the privilege. And also, the Corinthian court's and culture put a lot of emphasis on oratory excellence. Remember Paul talked about how some of you in the first and second chapters say that you're following Apollos, the sharp young preacher of the gospel, and there was this oratory culture where there was, they would 
just kind of engage in character assassination. And in the Corinthian courts, when the lawyers would get up and speak about their case, the, often the, the lawyer who won was the one who could vilify and character assassinate the other side more effectively than the other. And so when two Christians are engaged in this sort of worldly oration or deliberation of their dispute, they're sort of forgetting everything about how the Scriptures call us to live with one another in love and humility. One of Paul's greatest, I think, critiques of the Corinthian church in this chapter, underlying and throughout the whole book, is that the Corinthians... Christians in Corinth were more Corinthian than they were Christian. I think if there's one critique of the American church is that we often are more American than we are Christian. And so that's the background of the Corinthian courts and cultures. Now, a couple things before we engage in three things that I want us to see from this text is that we have to read this admonition by Paul in balance with Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, just flip to the right, go one book over to 2 Corinthians, and I'm sorry, go to the left, go one book over to Romans chapter 13, and let me read this, because we can, if we read 1 Corinthians 6 in isolation, we can, we can maybe develop the limited and wrong view that Paul is saying that Christians should not ever Uh, respect civil authority or go to court. Look, there is a place for judges. There is a place for lawyers. There's a place for attorneys and and litigation and, and governmental authority. And we as Christians need to respect that. Let me read Romans 13, which is also a biblical truth that we need to take this in context with. This is what Paul says to the Romans. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, whether that's a a judge, a local police force, whether it's a president that doesn't come from the party that you like, it's the army, the military, thank God for these things. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, ooh, this is an interesting sentence, and those that, I didn't know this was in the Bible, let me read this, and and those that exist have been instituted by God. Just a little rabbit trail here. So the Republican uh, uh, presidential candidate that you can't stand, if he gets elected, he's instituted by God. The Democratic uh, president that you can't stand, he's been instituted by God for God's providential purpose. Selah. Oh, we could go for days on that. Let's keep going. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. But listen to this in verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. A couple things about this now. Is is American government perfect? No, of course. American government is broken and very imperfect. Does that mean that everything that our presidents or our courts or our, our magistrates or our police do is good? No, of course not. But Paul is writing to Roman Christians 
who are under the authority of the Roman Empire at this time, which was very unrighteous in many ways. And Paul is saying that in the providence of God, God has instituted even pagan civil authority to bring about his good purposes, even as he works through their mixed motives. And so we could go much further into that, but the point that we need to take out of this is that as we go back now to 1 Corinthians, where Paul says is that Christians shouldn't go to court against one another, he is not saying that there is no place for civil authority. Here's a distinction we need to make. What Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 6 is he is talking about trivial cases. In fact, he says it there in verse 2. He says, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul is talking about sins and disputes against Christians within the local church. He's not talking about crimes. And so if a person that you even know to be a Christian, in fact, if there's a person that is a member of this church, breaks into your house at two o'clock in the morning and robs your stuff, call the police. <laughs> Not, don't sit down and say, hey, let's do a little 1 Corinthians 6, brother. Call the police. All right? If, 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 you get the point. We're not talking about crimes here. We're talking about disputes. We're talking about sins. We're not talking about crimes, which are also sins, but we're talking about sins of the civil nature between Christians. Paul is speaking about the trivial everyday matters and disputes between Christians. And so there are three things that I think we need to learn here. As Paul is saying that Christians should not take one another to court. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily a problem in our church, but I think what he is also saying here as, as a sort of springboard is that Christians should not engage in trivial, petty disputes with one another because when they do, they obscure the gospel, they forget the gospel, and they focus solely on themselves. And so let's look at those three points. The first thing that Christians do when they don't handle their grievances biblically, is that we collectively, by not handling our, our trivial cases amongst one another, we obscure the gospel. To obscure the gospel means that we darken, literally. We, we make it harder for the world to see the gospel. We confuse. We give a confusing representation of who Jesus is to us and what he has done among us and what he has done for the world. We obscure the gospel. Paul is saying that we should settle our disputes among ourselves in a civil, humble way, not because, listen to this, if you're not a Christian here today, we're not saying that Christians should handle their disputes because we don't trust the court system. And thank God for our, our court system in the United States. I realize there's problems with it, but relatively speaking to the court systems in the world, it is, it is, it is very good. Paul is not saying that we, shouldn't, we should handle our disputes because we don't trust the court system. What he's saying is, is that not because we think we're better, but because we have more important things to share with unbelievers. And if the loudest thing about a group of people is that Christians are always sort of engaged in petty fighting amongst one another, then the loudest thing about a church is their fights and their petty grievances with one another. And when this happens, do you see when we become selfish and when we infight and when we argue and when we don't settle our grudges and our grievances, do you see the 
the greater thing that's going on here, not just that there's a relationship broken between two Christians, but that the representation of who Christ is amongst his people is darkened, is obscured, it is blunted, and people can't see the most important thing that they need to see, which is Christ crucified and risen over his people, calling all men everywhere to repent. When Christians fight over silly little things, they obscure the gospel, stunt the mission of the church. I realize, friends, that there's times when we need to move from one local body to another, but um, let's be honest, and I realize there are some of you here that uh, are, are from other churches because maybe there was a church fight, and I realize there are legitimate times to break fellowship and to go somewhere else, but I think it's a sad testimony that one of the first things that comes to people's minds when they think about church, in our region especially, is just church splits and church fights. You ever heard that joke about that guy? He was stranded on an island, and um, he, was a, he was sailing a boat. And he got caught up in a storm. He was on the boat all by himself, and the storm took him to this remote island in the Atlantic Ocean, and he, he crashed on this island. It was totally uninhabited. It was all by himself. And he lived on this island for 10 years. And finally, he's kind of like Tom Hanks in that movie, whatever it was, with his cast, well, I don't know what the, you know what I'm talking about. And he lived on this island all by himself. And after 10 years, they found this guy on the island, and he had built this beautiful house out of mahogany wood. And just, you know, he didn't have anything else to do, so he built this house out of wood. And right next to his house, he had be- built this beautiful little chapel. This man was a devoted Christian, and he wanted to... He wanted to, even if he was going to die here alone on the island, he wanted, to, he wanted to build a house of worship for the Lord. And so right next to his house, they, he built this beautiful chapel. And the people that rescued him said, wow, man, that is a beautiful house. And what an amazing church you built right next to your house. That's amazing. He said, yeah, I just felt like it was important to, to worship God every, every Sunday. And then they looked off into the distance on this hill, kind of on the other side of the island, and they saw this other beautiful little chapel off in the distance. And they said, hey, What's that building up there? He goes, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> we, we know how to get into a fight, don't we? Over silly stuff. Friends, I realize there's times to break fellowship with people. But if we enter into grievances with one another with this, with this undergirding thought that the way we engage one another in disputes and grievances, and sins can actually display Christ to the world. And that when we as Christians elevate our preferences and petty differences above the cause of the gospel, we obscure the gospel. And we blunt our mission. And we may block people from seeing Jesus for who he is. That's point number one. When we don't handle our grievances biblically, we obscure the gospel. Secondly, even more tragically, is that we forget the gospel for ourselves. How quickly we forget our natural state before God and our great need of a mediator who is Christ. If you are easily offended that may be an indication 
that you do not have a good understanding of what Christ has done for you if you are a Christian. Here's the clear biblical witness. And friends, what I'm about to share with you is the biblical gospel. So if you've been tuned out, tune in. Tune in to me right now. This is this piece of information, this little portion of my message is the gospel. This is the clear biblical truth. We don't need help. Christianity is not a way to help yourself out to live a better life. Whether you are a good little American or whether you are a terrorist in the Middle East, the Bible is clear that all of us in this room were born separated from God and opposed to God. That we all, whether it's through crazy public sin or whether it's through trusting in our own righteousness, we are all born as treasonous glory thieves. No one is born good. None of us. All of us are born separated from God. Oh, you could, you could bring up the objection, oh, well, why would God even allow that? Friends, that is a, ultimately an unanswerable question which the scriptures only hint at, that the whole reason that God even allowed for human rebellion and fall is for a display of his saving glory. And if that hits you the wrong way, that you say, how could God allow for sin to enter in so that it would display his glory? You even give evidence to the fact that it's still about you because you resist And you resent the fact that God is about his glory. But that's the clear witness of scripture. And so in his providence, God allows for human rebellion and all of us start that way. Whether we're good Americans born in the south or whether we are crazy rebellious terrorists, all of us are not born good. We are born in need of a savior. We are born helpless. The theological term is is that we are completely unable. We are totally unable to save ourselves. And in response to this, not because it snuck up on him, but before the foundations of the earth, God set forth his son Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He came in the fullness of time, came in the flesh, God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the perfect God-man. He came and he took on, as Roman says, the likeness of our sinful flesh. And he lived perfectly in the flesh. He lived a life where he resisted all temptation. He was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, the Bible says in Hebrews. He became like us in every way except he was perfect in his resistance of temptation so that when the time came, he would be able to help us, Hebrews chapter 2 says. And Jesus then willingly laid down his life on the cross. And here's what happened on the cross, friends. This is the gospel. Get this. He absorbed the wrath of God. He became a sacrifice. He became a substitute on the cross for God's wrath. You see, God, because he's loving and just and holy, couldn't just erase human sin as non-consequential and say, ah, we'll start over. To maintain his character of goodness... He pours out his anger on Christ on the cross, his justice, his wrath, his punishment for our rebellion on Christ on the cross. And Jesus becomes the perfect wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross. If you are a Christian, that's what happened to the punishment for your sin. Jesus took it. There's a beautiful biblical word in Romans 3. That word is propitiation. And that word means that Jesus like a sponge, 
satisfied and wiped up all of God's justice and wrath against human sin for only for those who will repent and trust in Jesus. And so now, Christ, having been crucified and resurrected in victory over human sin, calls all men everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel. And so being a Christian is when you turn from trust in your own morality, you turn from coddling some sin, a rebellion, and you trust in Jesus. Does this mean that if you're a Christian, you're perfect or sinless? Of course not. The issue is not whether or not we still have sin after we've trusted in Jesus. The issue is whether or not we have repentance. I say it almost weekly here that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not. It's that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin while the unbeliever, the non-Christian, is taking sin's side against a dreaded God. And so what Christ has done is he hasn't just helped us. He hasn't improved our life and given us some leadership principles whereby we can lead our company or our school or our family better. He has brought us back to life. If you're a Christian, you were dead. You were sprinting. You weren't walking. You weren't lollygagging. You were sprinting straight to hell in rebellion against God. And if this language is hard for you, then the Bible is hard for you. But it's true, and ultimately it's good for your soul. And what Christ has done is he has rescued us, given us faith so that we would trust in him, and given us the gift of repentance so that we would turn from our own ways and trust in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if that has happened in you, if you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, that should produce in you utter humility. So what right then do we have to jettison and forget the gospel when we get sinned against and act haughty and prideful? When we elevate the grievance that we have between a brother to the highest place, then we forget the gospel, how quickly we forget our natural state before God when we deal with the sins of another person. Remember I told you about how I went and I used to be attached to my mom's purse when I was a little kid? Remember that? And one time when I was about five or six, she threw away her purse and in the alley behind our house, they would come pick up the trash, and, and I, I wasn't ready to depart with that purse yet. I hung on to that baby whenever we'd go to the store or whatever. That was my little pacifier, little wimpy little kid. But anyway, one night I crawled out into the alley, got in the trash can, and brought that purse back. And hid it underneath my bed. <laughs> Strange little kid. But, but don't we do the same thing with one another's sin? when we elevate our grievances to the point of irreconcilable differences because what we're doing then is we're taking the person who sinned against us and we take their sin and we go dig it out of the trash pile of God's grace and we say, now I'm going to hold on to this one a little bit longer. I'm going to forget what Christ has done for me. I'm going to forget what Christ has done for you and I'm going to hold on to this thing. I'm going to hold on to this thing. I'm going to stick it under my bed so I can bring it out and use it against you when I need to. Friends, when we don't handle our grievances biblically, and this isn't to say that we downplay. There may be things that we do to one another that are terrible. But when we cannot forgive one another and when we cannot bring in a, 
other trusted Christian to help arbitrate our differences when we cannot, even if it's very emotional and very difficult to get through, if we make a value judgment and to say, Christ can forgive everything, but this thing that you have done to me, and so now we're going to break fellowship. Friends, do you realize the value judgment that we make when we subconsciously say that? We are valuing our hurt as more powerful than Christ's reconciling work on the cross. And we forget the gospel. And when that happens, a community allows hollowness and distance and a sort of veneer of Christianity to take hold. And it becomes very superficial and very legalistic and very un-gospel feeling when we don't handle grievances, difficulty. And friends, I'm not just talking about little things. I'm talking about even deep things. When we don't do the hard work of rolling up our sleeves, we forget the gospel. And finally, the third one is we reveal our selfishness and dissatisfaction with God. We reveal our selfishness and dissatisfaction with God. Because in that moment, as I said, when we do not roll up our sleeves to do the hard work of judging one another, of bringing in another brother to help us work through an issue, then ultimately what we're doing is we're selfishly holding on to our hurt and esteeming it higher than Christ's reconciling grace and the display of his gospel. And then we ultimately... We ultimately express our dissatisfaction with God because the highest value in that scenario, when we don't handle our grievances biblically, the highest thing is what we lost in that relationship. And now, oh, how could you, how could you have done away with that? How could you have sinned against me? And now you've shattered my opportunity for happiness in this particular relationship. And when we hold on to that, we ultimately, we ultimately communicate our dissatisfaction with God because as we walk in that pain we, we say that God in his way is not enough and that my way is preferable we reveal our dissatisfaction and selfishness let me ask you a question let me ask myself a question what needs to change in our hearts so that we can become more content with being cheated what needs to change in our hearts so that we would be more content with being cheated? Remember just a moment ago I said that Paul's critique of the Corinthians was that they were more Corinthian than Christian? Do we realize that we grow up in this malaise of American culture which absolutely fills us with often unbiblical thoughts of individualism and self-autonomy? Listen, I'm glad I'm an American. I am very... I, 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 I know I punch us a little bit with little jabs, and I hit the Democrats and the Republicans, and look, I, look I, I'm very thankful that I'm American. I remember as a little kid back in the early 80s, I used to stand at attention when President Reagan came on the TV and gave speeches, and my brother's like, you little freak. I'd be like, lock it up, man. The president, I'm standing at attention. Man, I'm, I'm like locking it up. I, I mean, I had, believe me, I'm a little patriot. I mean, I've been indoctrinated. Uh, no doubt about it. I, I, I used to fall asleep in college to 
General MacArthur's speeches. I, 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 I love America. But do you realize that we, when we imbibe in the culture of individualism and civil rights, we are becoming more American than we are Christian? Let's go back to this text. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits, or maybe for us, the application would be disputes and grievances that are unsettled, that we handle publicly. To have these at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Listen to Paul's reasoning. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? We don't even think that way. I got my rights. I'm an American. I'll sue you. You'll hear from my lawyer. Me, 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 this culture of me. It's like Paul writes in Philippians. He says, beware of those dogs. Their God is their belly. And that is the truth of American culture, man. Our God is our belly. Us, us. How dare you infringe and somehow besmirch my American dream. The American dream is a pathway to rebellion against God most of the time. Why not rather be wronged, Paul says. How countercultural is that for selfish Americans like us who demand our rights? When we think that way, we obscure the gospel. We forget the gospel. And we reveal our selfishness. Let me end with just reading some words from Scripture with very little commentary. And as I read these words, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just sink and sit heavy on us. This is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Every part of me. Every demand I have for justice has been crucified. Is that to say that God wants us to be trampled over? No, of course not. Is that to say that God is not a God of justice? No, of course not. Paul is saying here, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith. I live in the flesh. I live by faith by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen now to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another, let me add a parenthesis, even those that sin against you with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And listen to this, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so, so what verse 24, I, I thought about this for the longest time. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That means have, have secret phone conversations with one another where you secretly plan on how you might bless one another, not how I can't believe she did this and so we're not going to invite her to coffee next Tuesday at Panera Bread. No, no, secretly devise on how you might stir one another up towards good works. And that good work might be, hey, bro, we got a problem and we need to bring another guy in to help us arbitrate this issue so that we don't obscure the gospel and forget it. Ephesians 4, verse 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And finally, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. He, said, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, undergirding all of these admonitions from Scripture is not do these things so that you will be acceptable as an individual and as a church to Jesus. But undergirding all these things is that Jesus has made you new. He has made you his new people. So live out who you already are. Live out who you already are. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Then the guys are come, come and respond, help us respond with a few songs of worship. Communion will be available for us. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to receive communion with us. And those commu the communion elements represent the broken body of Jesus. That's what the bread represents. The blood represents his spilled blood for us. If you need to work some of this out in your heart, I encourage you to come and respond by worshiping God through receiving communion.
when we do that, we remember what Jesus has done and we examine our own lives. It would be a shame if there's a situation in your life that the Holy Spirit put his finger on and for you to just let it kind of be like water off of a duck's back and roll out of here unaffected. There may be even somebody in this room that you need to go to before you leave this building today and say, hey, bro, hey, sis, we need to talk. There may be something that the Holy Spirit is pressing on you right now. James says, to him who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I pray that we as a church would walk in the spirit of Paul's words, that we would not obscure the gospel by petty grievances, that we would not forget the gospel, and that we would not idolize our own selves by being caught up in grievances with one another. Lord, as we now turn our hearts to respond, I pray a few things. First, I pray, Lord, for the person that's in this room who is not trusted in Christ. Maybe they grew up in church and they've just sort of assumed because they were a church kid that they were all right. But they have never turned from their sin and trusted in you. They've trusted in themselves, not in what Christ has done on the cross and his death, the sacrificial atoning death on the cross and his resurrection, his victorious defeat of sin and all its consequences. God, they've never done that. Lord, would you right now, would you give that person the gift of faith and repentance? Heaven and hell hangs in the balance even now, God. Would you, would you give them the gift of faith so that they would see Christ? And friends, if that's you, you don't need to raise your hand or respond to an altar call. You need right now to trust in Christ. Believe in him. This is what Jesus says about what it means to become a Christian. Repent and believe. Turn from self-trust. Turn from your, turn from trusting in your own righteousness and trust in Christ. Do that right now. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Put the force of your life, your hope of your future in what Christ has done and his work on the cross for you. Do that right now. Lord, I pray that you would give that gift to a person in this room so that they would clearly understand the gospel and they would respond to it. And Lord, for the rest of us in this room who are already Christians, I do pray that you would stir our affection for Jesus. I pray for great humility to seize us as a church. I pray for a determination amongst people in this room to work out our grievances biblically. Lord, we have more important things to share with the world than our petty little dissensions and fights. And so, Lord, I pray that there would, you would just develop in us even a deeper resolve to live this way, to live this way with one another. God, humble us. We are by nature self-righteous glory thieves. Humble us, I pray, and let us see Jesus. Let us fall in love with Christ even deeper today if we're a Christian and then let it push us out into deeper love for our brother and sister in Christ which then promotes a clearer picture of what you have done for us. And by doing that, Lord, we are loving this world because we're loving them through being authentic in our life together. And so, Lord, even as we do this internal thing, 
Would it become an external display of the gospel to a world who needs to see Jesus clearly? Lord, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.